Welcome to EU The Jury. I'm Robin Lustig, and with me are 10 men and women who hope to be able to make up their minds about how to vote in the EU referendum on June the 23rd. They're going to hear from experts, question them closely, and then discuss among themselves what they've learnt. And you will be able to eavesdrop on their deliberations. Perhaps our jurors will ask some of the questions that you want to ask, and perhaps the answers they get will help you to make up your mind. So, who are our jurors? Well, we've picked them pretty much at random, although, of course, they're not meant to be a scientifically representative sample of the UK electorate. So, let's get them to introduce themselves. My name's Matthew. I'm a university administrator. Um, I'm a bit sceptical about the benefits of the EU. I'll be interested to get some answers to questions. My name's Sharma. I'm uh, originally a journalist now with a portfolio career. Um, what matters to me in this is actually getting the decision right for the country. Unlike most elections where I vote according to what I feel I want, I feel a greater sense of kinship and community over this vote. I haven't got a clue which way to go. Hi, my name's John. I was an executive in the international oil and gas uh, construction business. Uh, my main concern is the economy. I'm perfectly willing to believe that in the long term it will be very good to leave, but I'm not sure we can survive the short term. I have a daughter of 20 who will suffer more than I do, whatever the uh, result is. Uh, my name's Simon. I work for an arts organisation. Uh, I think it's a massive decision and um, I think it's really important to know have more information about it that is separated from some of the emotional uh, side of it that gets discussed. Hi, I'm Amy. Um, I've been living in this country for 25 years, but I'm originally from America. Uh, I have both passports, by the way. Um, yeah, it's very confusing, all this. It seems that there's been such a long time investing in the EU. I mean, all this money that's been spent trying to get it right, and then it just seems overnight we've been asked to make a decision as to, well, actually, it's, it's not any good and, and we want to eliminate it, which means another investment in actually extricating ourselves. Hi, I'm Denise. I run a training company and I'm a social worker, do fostering and adoption assessments. Um, I flip-flop on this one. One of the first times I'm not voting party political lines, so I think I go with Sharma. This is not for me, this is for the country. Hi, my name's Chris. I'm a PhD student. Um, my natural inclination, I guess, is to stay in, although recent comment and debate has led me to believe that perhaps I'm curious to know what it might be like to leave um, more than it being a decisive decision so far. So. Hi, my name is Madeline. Um, I'm retired. I work in the voluntary sector, and like you were saying, you spent we spent so much money coming in, and what are we going to do now? You know, we're spending more money coming out. It seems. Hi, my name is Max. I'm a magazine editor, uh, and I've heard quite a lot of the arguments from professional politicians and from advocacy groups, and it all all of the arguments so far seem quite sloganised. So I'd be interested to hear a little bit more sort of detail and theory. I am Nadia. Um, I work in a hotel. I was in banking, uh, but I've got four children. Um, and really, it's about their future. And I am undecided as well. OK, so let's crack on. This discussion is going to be about the economy. To put it at its simplest, 
Will remaining in the EU or leaving it be better for the UK economy and for its future prospects? Our first speaker is Rory Broomfield, who's the director of the Better Off Out campaign. So, Rory Broomfield, make your case. Well, thank you very much, Robin. And ladies and gentlemen, uh, I want you to imagine for a second that it's 1973 and that uh, President Nixon is in the White House, Brezhnev is in the Kremlin, and Ted Heath is in number 10 Downing Street. The world is dominated by blocs, the Soviet Union, the uh, uh, United States, et al. And at this point in time, the European Economic Community, the EEC, made up roughly 37% of world GDP. And barriers to trade with other blocs and other nations were substantial, uh, up to 90% on some goods. The UK, as a result of many things, decided to join what was then called the common market. Now, fast forward to today. There is no Soviet Union. Things have changed drastically. There are many multinational and supranational organizations that go beyond the level of the European Union. And the most successful countries economically are those that are independent nation states able to make their own rules in an increasingly competitive global environment. Yet, whilst all of this is happening, the European Economic Community has turned into the European Union. It has become more bureaucratic, more centralized, and less competitive than the rest of the world. And as a result, the EU now makes up just 17% of world GDP and is declining. Now, what does this mean for the United Kingdom? The irony is that the UK is uniquely placed to take advantage of this new global environment. We are the fifth largest economy in the world. We are members of the G8, industrialized nations. Uh, we are world leaders in science, technology, many other industries. Indeed, we are the global capital of global capital in terms of finance and legal services. And indeed, we have the global business language. All that, including the fact that we have 52 other Commonwealth nations that are all growing, and they are all looking to trade freely with not just the UK, but other countries around the world. In contrast to the EU then, the UK, if it were to leave the EU, has a bright future. Outside this relic of a trade bloc, we could do deals with these other countries around the world that suit the United Kingdom. But also, whilst removing ourselves from the political union of the EU, have a British option to have a trade deal with the EU. So trade freely with the European Union without the political baggage. In leaving, we could ensure that we weren't subject to paying for more EU bailouts of Eurozone nations. We, would, could, we could ensure that we don't pay extra for EU budgets uh, coming down the road. And we unshackle ourselves from many EU regulations that do not fit 
our economy and our landscape. And indeed, free ourselves from regulations that fit the Eurozone and the interests of those member states rather than the United Kingdom. And the European Union is putting more regulations on the City of London and its uh, auxiliary functions uh, and making us, the United Kingdom, less competitive in the global world. Finally, outside the European Union, we can protect our global reach. If we remain, we will become little Europeaners. If we leave, we can be great globalists. Thank you. Right, I'm going to go to the jury and see what they would like to ask you. Who's got the first question? Yes, Amy. At the moment, we're the fifth largest economy in the world. Um, I wasn't aware of that. That sounds pretty impressive. So if we come out of the EU, what's your aspiration? What, what number should we be? Because fifth is a, it's a pretty good number, isn't it? Well, it is. Um, and it's a result of the United Kingdom's quite complex economy where we have a diverse range of different industries, whether they be in finance or indeed education or uh, high-tech science, etc. Uh, it's not about necessarily getting up in the charts in that respect, but it's about getting what we could possibly get in terms of connections with other partners around the world, in terms of trade, and in terms of everything that would ultimately benefit the British people. Because with higher growth, with higher, with more opportunities and potentials, comes better jobs and comes better opportunities for Britons to get on in this environment. Who's next? John. Hi. You talk about us having a deal with Europe. Um, and you talk as if we were in the driving seat on that, whereas in fact Europe is in the driving seat and Norway is still subject to all sorts of EU regulations and still contributes. What makes you feel that we would be any different? Well, I respectfully disagree with you uh, with regards to the driving seat ideal. Uh, the United Kingdom has a trade deficit, a structural trade deficit with the EU of over £60 billion a year. That is huge. That is historically high and means if you're talking about jobs linked to trade, over 5 million jobs in the European Union are linked to trade with the United Kingdom. And as a result of that, uh, if we were to leave on June the 23rd, the, the Germans and the French and the Spanish, other nations around the world and their heads of state will want to do a deal with the United Kingdom. And it's not something particularly special in the sense that the EU hasn't done free trade deals with other nations around the world. Indeed, there are 52 deals of one way on one thing or the other with other nations from Mexico to South Korea to El Salvador. So it's not as if the UK couldn't do a deal with the EU. And indeed, the EU is obligated under its own treaty law to enter into negotiations with any member state that chooses to leave. And you talk about the Norway 
uh, ideal. Now, David Cameron has actually ruled that out at the dispatch box last year. He said the Norway option isn't the option for Britain. I think we could do a British deal, a deal that suits the relationship that we have with the European Union. And that could deal, that deal could be done throughout the process of this Article 50 negotiation. Yes, Max. You mentioned the Commonwealth in your argument, and I hear from Eurosceptic people uh, that we should be trading more with the Commonwealth more generally. But we already export to America. We already trade with America, to give one high-profile example. And there was the quite famous uh, recent quote from Barack Obama when he was in London, Britain will be moved to the back of the queue for trade deals. So surely we are more successful trading the Commonwealth as part of a bigger block of countries. Because once you exhaust sort of America and Australia and the bigger Commonwealth countries, I'm curious to know as how you think uh, outside the EU, Britain would be, would be better trading with the Commonwealth than they are inside the EU. There are trade deals that can be made with the other Commonwealth nation states by an independent UK that I believe would be done quicker and would be done in, in a way of better interests for both parties. And it's because of the way trade deals are done through the EU uh, that effectively means you have 28 member states around the table all talking about what they want and their industries and horse trading and doing all that before they even get to the discussion with the other nation. And as a result, say, for example, India, uh, that trade deal has stalled. Now, the United States... I would have said the United Kingdom would have done a trade deal with the United States decades ago if it wasn't part of the European Union. With TTIP, currently um, on the back... That's the new trade agreement that's being negotiated. Exactly. It's called the Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership. And it's meant to be a trade deal between the United States and the European Union. And it's fallen quite dramatically uh, because of the numerous pitfalls with it. Two key pitfalls, albeit there are others, um, is the inclusion of things, possible inclusion of industries that the UK would look to exclude, and the exclusion of industries that the UK would be crazy not to include. And the famous uh, inclusion, possible inclusion, is the NHS for TTIP. The second thing, talking about exclusions is what's generally termed culture. The European Union, because of France's worries over its language and its culture, it has effectively scrapped that and excluded that from the deal with the United States. Now, thinking about this, the almost the biggest thing that we have with the US is the common language in one way or another. And you have huge trade links with capital and investments and financial services. But you also have trade links with books, with films, with music and everything else. And for this to be excluded from the deal is madness from the UK's perspective. Chris, you had a question. You talk about a lot about the costs and the, ben- um, the costs of the EU, how much we pay, how much we receive, as if it's such a burden. 
Do you not see any benefits at all from all the money that we, we spend currently? Personally, I do. Freedom of movement, the ability to go abroad. There's a lot of benefits to the money that we pay. We gain a lot from it already. And also, do you, do you not believe that the current overemphasis on legal financial, the legal financial sector in the UK is an argument for us to engage with the EU in order to balance our industrial policy a little bit more? The costs of being in the EU far outweigh the benefits. Your question was whether or not there are any benefits to the UK in being in the EU. Uh, well, I'm sure some people may think of them, but actually in terms of work and in terms of travel and all that, you can do that anywhere in the world anyway. Um, in terms of uh, the over-reliance on financial services, um, or so I, I thought from your suggestion, the financial services sector is the largest sector in the United Kingdom. Um, but it doesn't necessarily crowd out other sectors. In fact, it, you could argue it helps to facilitate them. The point about manufacturing and what have you, and indeed other industries, I would say has been hurt by the European Union. Steel industry or uh, the energy industry, or, and I could give you examples of how the European Union has held the UK back in the global system of finance, or in the global system in general, the global economy. Sharma. Slightly hypothetical, but all of this is hypothetical. What would be the effect of us leaving on the EU? What changes do you imagine would happen as a result of that? The European Union once has produced something called the Five Presidents Report. Now, this sees by 2025 complete fiscal, financial and political union within the Eurozone. As a result, I think in general, whether we leave or we, or we stay, the European Union is going to become a lot more inward looking. And as a result of the priorities of the Eurozone, indeed other priorities regarding the digital single market and uh, energy union and everything else, it will become little Europe. Simon, you had a question. Uh, could we just look a bit behind those GDP figures? Um, isn't it true, actually, rather than the fact that the EU is somehow underperforming and, and really suffering, that actually the rest of the world, other countries, India, Brazil, are actually producing far more? So that's why we make up a smaller percentage of the overall whole now, not because we're somehow inefficient and, and a bit rubbish. It's actually that, quite rightly, the rest of the world has become richer, and that's generally a wonderful thing, right? I agree it's a wonderful thing that people, economies grow and people have opportunities that they wouldn't otherwise have. The point about the decline is that it shows how uncompetitive the EU has become. So ultimately, year on year out, um, whether you look at the new treaties or what have you to solve particular problems with the European Union, the prescription is more EU. As a result, the EU isn't growing in comparison to the rest of the world. So the other nations have been able to grow and make up more of the world GDP, whilst the European Union has stifled through its centralization and bureaucracy, uh, over bureaucracy, 
Um, and that has meant that it hasn't kept up in this global race. We'll leave it there. Rory Broomfield, thank you very much. So thank you for all those questions. We will move on now to our second speaker, who is Rebecca Driver, who is an economist and who used to work at the Bank of England and at the Association of British Insurers. She now runs a research consultancy called Analytically Driven. Rebecca Driver. Okay, good afternoon. I got into the EU question because I was asked a couple of years ago by a client to take a look at the academic and policy literature about what economists think is important for things like growth, investment, trade, and to make an assessment of how the EU works and whether being in the EU is likely to be better or worse than the possible alternatives. Somewhat to my surprise, it turns out that when you ask the question that way, in other words, you start with what's important for growth and trade, and then start thinking about what framework would you put in place, the answer comes up back pretty much across the board that actually EU membership is very good for the UK economy. So, why is that? Well, for me, one of the key reasons revolves around trade and the importance of trade for the economy. In particular, what you find is that if you look at any economy around the world and you look at who are the most innovative, who are the most productive firms out there, what you find is by and large those firms are exporters. And the EU market is designed precisely to benefit those types of firms. Crossing a border is really expensive for firms. And it's not just about the tariffs involved, although in some cases those can be important. It's mostly about things like regulatory barriers, as well as factors like um, the need to change your currency, um, sort of and agree which currency you're going to be paid in, which obviously is not going to go away regardless of whether or not we stay in the EU. And what you find is that actually, in terms of how you set the EU has been set up, it's been set up in a way that is designed to reduce those sorts of barriers. So, for example, if you're a firm, either a service sector firm or a, or a, a firm that produces goods, under the single market, you can sell your good or your service pretty much right across the EU without having to think about, do I need to obey different regulation? The single market is designed to provide a regulatory framework that allows you to do what you do right across the EU. A market that accounts for roughly a quarter of the world economy, including 500 million relatively well-off consumers. In other words, from the point of view of firms, a great market to play in. In addition, from the point of view of the UK in particular, what you find when you look at trade flows is that geography is actually really important. 
Now, if, like me, you've ever had a long-distance relationship, you'll know exactly why that's the case, why it's difficult to kind of make those telephone calls when you're in different time zones and across countries, the sort of thing that's important for services trade. But it's also important for goods trade. On average, it takes 20 days from Europe to the US by um, ship and 30 days from Europe to Japan by ship. Now, I don't know if you're like me, but when I click on a website and I'm trying to buy something, if I'm told that I have to wait a long amount of time, that good either has to be really unique or really cheap, otherwise I'm looking elsewhere. So for those sorts of reasons, the EU is always going to be a much easier market for the UK to break into than others. And being a member of the EU has key benefits in terms of providing a framework that reduces your regulatory costs relative to all the possible alternatives for EU trade. Thank you, Rebecca. Um, just just a, a quick question before I go back to our jury. Um, the key argument made on trade by those who believe we would, better, we would be better off outside the EU is that being members of the EU prevents us trading or signing trade agreements with countries which it would be beneficial to do so, that we can only do what the EU allows us to do in terms of trade deals. Is that not a big factor? Um, I think what those people probably fail to appreciate is just how difficult and complex it is to negotiate a trade deal. Trade deals are really complicated because they involve many and multiple sectors. Actually, from the point of view of any country that's looking to prioritise which countries it negotiates with, Negotiating with a bloc that gives it access to 25% of the world economy is going to be much more valuable than negotiating with the UK, even if the UK is the fifth biggest economy in the world. Um, in terms of the, oh, well, the EU only allows us to do um, the sort of things that they want to do, not the sort of things that I, we want to do. Actually, what you find when you look at EU trade deals is that they do try and prioritise things like access to financial services, which tends to be one of the really big and most difficult things to get on to any trade deal. That's certainly been, um, as I understand it, the experience within TTIP. They've recognised that actually financial services is important for the UK economy. So if we're negotiating with the US, it has to be on the agenda. For me, one of the biggest risks associated with um, Brexit is the fact that in the rush to be able to demonstrate that, yay, we did the right thing, um, what will happen is the sort of trade deals that get signed will not be the sort of trade deals that particularly benefit the UK economy because the priority will be signing deals, not signing the right deals. Now, to give you an idea of the sort of deals, of the sort of details that matter um, in a trade deal, um, take the case of the trade deal that's been done between the US and South Korea and Europe and South Korea covering legal services. 
what you find is that when you look at the, compare the US deal versus the EU deal, the EU deal includes the ability of EU firms to participate in the market for um, labor law and intellectual property law, and the US deal doesn't. So actually, kind of those sorts of details matter. You need to have it written in. One of the reasons I like the EU is because actually it's flexible. You don't have to write in that you can participate in these markets. A new market comes up, you can automatically sell right across the EU under the single market. That is not true under a trade deal. Okay, thank you for that. Over to the jury. My concern, you talk about trade deals, practically everything you know you touch is made in China. So what about the what about the EU's trade deal with China? Or do they just circumnavigate that? Okay. Um, because it's, it's a very yeah. big economy, it, it's a growing yeah. economy. We want to export to them, but I don't know whether they're, they're that interested. All they want to do is flood the world with everything, including steel. Um, in terms of China and its place within the world economy, um, I, I, I think its reputation, I mean, it is a big economy, it is a, an important economy, but its reputation is probably exaggerated. Um, and the reason I say this is thinking about the example of an iPhone. Um, so there's a lot of fuss occasionally in the US that why are we importing our iPhones from, from China? Um, and you actually look at the bits that go into the production of an iPhone, and you find that it spans three continents, five countries, at least nine different corporate entities, and the part of the production that takes place in China is the final assembly, and actually, in terms of value added, it's tiny. So it's a really tiny proportion of the total, but because it's the final part in the process, um, the way that trade is measured says that, oh, well, they ship these iPhones, so the entire value of the iPhone is attributed to Chinese trade. Um, for those countries that have negotiated trade deals with China, um, I've heard c firms talk um, quite skeptically about the quality of the deals that they've been able to negotiate. They're often, we will open our markets now, and at some point in the future, China will consider opening their markets to us. So there's often a lot of upfront kind of costs that you have to bear in order to get a deal that might benefit you down the future. And obviously, if China wants to negotiate, negotiating with the EU gives it more. Simon, you had a question? Yeah, do you think uh, Barack Obama was scaremongering when he said that the UK would be to the back of the queue? I mean, wouldn't the US sign a trade deal with us regardless of whether we were part of the EU or not? Um, I, I, I don't think the US would refuse to sign a trade deal with us. I do think he's right to say we would go to the back of the queue um, because um, they're much further down the line with TTIP than they are with um, than they would be with us. Um, one of the key things that is part of any trade deal is the regulations under which you're playing. Um, kind of reducing regulatory barriers is actually 
quite an important part of trade deals. Um, and if you think about it, if the reason we're leaving the EU is in order to tear up the rule book and start again, they don't know which regulations we're going to be playing by. They're going to want to wait until see how the dust settles before they start any negotiations with us. And things like financial services, for example, as I've said, can be really hard to get on the table. Switzerland, which has a big financial services sector, um, and hundreds of different trade deals with the EU because they have to do them on a sector-specific basis, only has one trade deal covering financial services, which is for non-life insurance, so general insurance. That's the only deal it's been able to get on the table. These things are complex. They're complex for good reasons. I've got a broader question on budgets, we know that the UK pays more into the EU than it gets out of the EU. It must be true, mustn't it, as the pro-Brexit people say, that if we left the EU, we would then have money in our pockets which we could spend, the UK government could spend, in ways which it regarded as most beneficial to the UK. Well, I think there are two things on that. Um, firstly, um, there's an issue of scale. Um, the amounts of money involved um, equivalent to, from memory, about 0.5% of GDP. So the kind of the net amount of money um, is very, very small relative to the size of the state in this country, which is, like in most countries, is quite big. So um, it's, it's only, it's less than 2% of tax revenues, for example, in terms of scale. Um, I suppose the other thing is that um, the problem, as indeed we're already seeing in the UK economy, is that um, leaving the EU would be a massive economic shock and positive or negative, in the short run, it would involve huge uncertainty. Um, so what you're seeing is that both firms and consumers are putting off big purchases. They're waiting to see what happens. Um, if we vote to stay in, then that uncertainty goes away and firms will start planning in the normal way. Um, but if we vote to leave, then the uncertainty increases. So it increases for a variety of reasons. One is that if you ask Brexiters, what do you see the framework being put in place, both for EU membership, but also for our relationships with other countries, you can get radically different answers. Brexit is kind of the only thing that unites Brexiters is the idea that they want to leave the EU. They do not have a clear and coherent plan as to what happens next. So the first thing that will need to happen is the Brexiters will need to get in a room and fight it out until they can decide what the plan looks like. The next thing that needs to happen is the fact that actually the EU or the rest of the EU needs to decide what sort of deal they're willing to give us. And it's in their gift. It's not for us to negotiate. It's their decision as to what the rules post-exit would look like. All these things lead to considerable uncertainty. It means that firms 
are likely to postpone as many decisions as they possibly can um, until you kind of reach some, a, a more certain environment, which inevitably means that output goes down, which therefore means your tax revenue goes down, which means the money available to fund all the services and the things that you want to do has actually gone down, not up. Matt? Yeah, I've got a question about closer and closer union and how that relates to the economy. And where you see the, Europe, the, the EU economy in 5, 10, 15, 30 years' time, um, what decisions are going to be, be able to, are uh, national governments going to be able to make? I mean, i.e., how are they going to be able to differentiate themselves from other um, national governments within the union, perhaps varying their rates of income tax or VAT, etc.? Or are all of those things going to be harmonised? Um, under the EU rules, fiscal policy is one of the things that. Um, is retained by national governments. So uh, unless there was to be a, a massive treaty change, which personally I don't see the UK signing up to, um, that is not going to change. It might change within the Eurozone, and I think the Eurozone is a special case, but I don't think just because it changes within the Eurozone, it's necessarily um, going to sort of change right across the Union. So. Our ability to uh, improve our competitiveness through tax rates, to um, tax income the way that we do, to kind of tax VAT, I, I don't see that changing. Last question from Nadia. It's slightly different, but I want to go back to what you were saying about trading outside of the EEC, um, trading with um, the other side of the world. Is it really not just because you're saying it would be much more expensive, but so goods would be much more expensive, and therefore you, you're concerned that people would stop buying those goods. But if they're expensive, then surely the wages need to be higher. Um, in terms of kind of wages and the impact of wages, um, I think that's a really um, a really complex um, one. There is an element in which you need to be careful what you wish for. Now, even without a trade deal with China, I don't know if any of you drove around the Kent countryside um, sort of late autumn last year and noticed that around all the apple trees, there were loads of apples on the ground. The reason for that is because it wasn't cost effective for farmers to pay people to pick the apples versus supermarkets importing them from China and places like that. So actually, um, there is a sense in which kind of having trade relationships with countries like China does bring benefits, but it also brings risks in terms of the way in which your economy has to adjust, the fact that you are competing against countries that are very low wage countries, and that can tend to push down your wages or push you out of particular markets. We'll leave it there. Rebecca Driver, thank you very much indeed. Pleasure.
So, members of the jury, it is now time for you to discuss among yourselves what you heard both there from Rebecca Driver and from Rory Broomfield. Let's see if they've helped in any way at all to clarify any of the issues for you. Who wants to kick off? Who had a sort of light bulb moment? Well, it's just well, interesting how information is presented. So Rory presents his case and he quotes numbers at us about the GDP. And I think it is, he doesn't give you the bigger picture. And the bigger picture, which I tried which I tried to mention, was that you know perhaps the global economy has changed. And if the figures he's quoting doesn't reflect that somehow we're suffering because we're in the EU or the EU is this terribly inefficient trading block. But he didn't say anything that changed your mind or, 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 or thought you might have to change your mind. No, he just gave information like that, like the GDP, and also making sweeping statements like the, the geopolitical situation in the world has changed. You know, well, this Russia is there. It might not be called the Soviet Union anymore. China's still there. The USA's still there. I just feel like when people, uh, you know, some of the statements he made, I just felt like you need to interrogate them because behind them, there was some real detail that he's not giving. Amy, what do you think? One of the things the EU seems to be doing is protect us from political backwards and forwards, I think. So if we came out of the EU, I guess the benefit is that the government could, could implement policies that, that they want. But the good side is that the government cannot... You know, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. It depends. But it does seem that if, if you're out of the EU, that you could be... Um, swinging from one five-year session to another as policies dramatically change. Um, that, that was a big moment for me to understand that what all this could potentially mean. I, I, did, I somewhat agree with Simon, actually, about how the information was presented. I thought Rory had a very compelling narrative about talking unshackling ourselves from a relic of a, a trade block. And he talked in very compelling terms about being able to negotiate trade deals that just suit us. But I actually thought that Rebecca's point, for example, about iPhones, she was saying about how although things are manufactured in China, they come from a number of different countries. I thought she gave some quite good actual specific examples of how trading and the global economy is more complex, I think, than so far we've heard from the outside. I think Was there a moment when you thought I might have to think again about this? What Rory was saying about... Um, the UK being hamstrung by, for example, um, French worries about cultural imports and exports and what's on the table and not on the table. I, I see the argument that Britain would be much stronger from a position of being able to dictate those terms, but I think that's counterbalanced by being at the back of the queue, so to speak, if we're not with the EU anyway. So I think it sort of swings and roundabouts. Um, one of my shifts is something that you brought up right at the beginning, which which I suppose where I am now, I've realized that I'm probably taking in my decision too short a term view. And you said that much earlier. And in my thinking, should we come in or go or leave, stay in or leave? Um, I'm beginning with the speakers to think that my decision now needs to be based on a much longer term perspective. As it, So I've shifted in, in that sense. Um, I thought it was very interesting when she discussed all the minutiae of these trade deals, which made you realize what an incredible task it will be to negotiate these deals. It's, it's going to be a hugely difficult process. And I have to say, if it, as I think Madeline was saying, if it just depends on trade, 
the decision is seems to me quite clear if it just depends on trade, which it obviously doesn't. So that was that was my lamp, my light bulb moment. I haven't had a light bulb moment. Um, it's all been about treaties and money. And as we are the fifth richest economy, I think personally, and of course this is predicated on ignorance, that whether we're in or out, Britain is going to be rich. Whether we're in or out and things are easier staying in or harder coming out, we'll get past it. What I haven't understood is which principle is the most important and why it should be. And I've not heard anything human about the bureaucracy, uh, about the amounts, about the, uh, the way people feel about things. And I think ultimately, this is a great nation. It will always be a great nation. I want to understand better what it means for us as individuals, not for corporations. You were all saying at the beginning that you wanted more information, that you felt you hadn't got enough information yet. Now, you got a lot of information from both those two speakers. Did it help? Max? Just a short point. We are just, though, at the moment, talking about trade. So yeah. I think it does help to have information, but then you have to, as sort of I think you were just uh, saying before, you have to weigh up in your head how important you think trade is as one of the areas. And I agree that it'll be fine in the long run. And I think Rebecca was saying there'll be short-term impacts and long-term impacts. And I'm now re-evaluating how important I think the economy is in comparison to things like sovereignty and immigration and the other issues. It may not, to me, be the most important factor. I took two things out of it. Um, Retreaties. I, I didn't realise that Lisbon allowed countries to set their own tax rates and so on. But then that made me, immediately, immediately makes me think of, I mean, these treaties come along, you know, every five, ten years or so, don't they? So, you know, what treaties are going to take place over, you know, in five, ten years' time, you know? And given that the EU stated aim is closer and closer union, I think they're only going to... Mr Cameron away. says that, that, that Britain's got a sort of, you don't have to take any notice of that anymore. Okay, so are we looking at some sort of two-tier Europe and in we, on around which Britain could be a satellite like a number of other countries? How would you feel about that? Fine by me. Let's have a trade deal, but let's not have them writing our laws and, um, and governing us. Okay, I think for now we'll end it on that. It's been very useful. I hope you thought it was as well. There are three more discussions available on our website. So just go to eutheJury.uk, listen to our discussions there about immigration, about sovereignty and about rules and regulations. I'm Robin Lustig. Thank you for listening. <laughs>